Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair Rev 250, which is a collaboration among groups looking to commemorate the beginnings of the American Revolution. I also teach history at Suffolk University. And our guest today is Joel Boy, who is the Director of Historic Arms and Militaria for Bruneau and Company Auctioneers, as well as an archaeologist and a historian of various things relating to military history, particularly pertaining to the revolution. So Joel, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. And so you grew up in Concord, Massachusetts. So as a boy, you began an interest in all of the stuff you can find on these battlefields. Yeah. Um, we moved to Concord when I was very young and uh, we lived in uh, a neighborhood behind Merriam's Corner across the field. Um, and so I got to spend a lot of time as a kid um, out on the battlefield. And, you know, when I was about seven, April 19th became one of the most important things in life, more so than Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd be up all night sitting on the couch waiting to put my little tricornered hat and cap gun musket to, to go down into town and watch the parade and, and go to Lexington and see all the events. Well, and then you grew up and were able to continue doing things very much like that. Kind of grew up. <laughs> yeah. You became a collector of military artifacts, too. I, I collected. Yeah, I collected for a while. Um, most of what I collect now is research and data. Um, yeah. And uh, so I found that to be more fascinating and important. And plus, I have so many friends who own the objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do a lot of work with different museums and historical societies. So I get to see and handle a lot of things right. um, without having to own them. That's right. You, you've been on the... Um... Antiques Roadshow quite a bit too. Yeah, I'm a I'm an appraiser on uh, Antiques Roadshow at the Arms Military Table, yeah. um, which is also great. We get to see a lot of really interesting things there. Really, too. Yeah, yeah. So you see things ranging from ancient to modern, but you still have this fascination with the Revolutionary period. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I collected World War One, World War Two, and, yeah. and all that stuff for a while, but mm-hmm. because it was affordable. Yeah. It's yeah. not so much now, but um, it was affordable then, and I and I have an interest in the Civil War and all of that also. Sure. Yeah. But April nineteenth and the you know lead up to the war has always been yeah. my favorite. Yeah, two of the artifacts actually from April nineteenth we were just talking about that are actually in the Massachusetts State House in the mm-hmm. Senate Chamber are two muskets that are affiliated somehow with Captain Parker, but they have a somewhat different story from what. Yeah, what? yeah. So the there they have. Uh, Captain Parker's uh, fouling piece, which was donated by Theodore Parker, his grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was converted to percussion in the 19th century, then badly uh, reconverted to flint. But mm-hmm. the bo- bones of the gunner are, are still good and they're still there. The other one is a captured musket um, with brass plaques on either side that Theodore Parker put there, um, saying that John Parker captured the gun um, on the morning of the 19th. Um, but it's, uh, it seems Joshua Simons um, actually captured it from Lexington, a member of the militia company. Now, how did you find that out, that um, Joshua Simons? I, I found it mentioned in a book. There was an account where he mentioned it and that he turned it into Captain Parker that afternoon. Hmm. Um, and so we looked at the gun. There's two other guns known from the 43rd Regiment of Foot. Um, there's both in private collections. Um, mm-hmm. And they had certain characteristics. Um, and that particular gun, uh, while doing some research in mass archives records and working with Don Haggist, we were able to identify more than likely, uh, that it was carried by a guy named Duncan McDonald, who was the only grenadier captured, um, on the 19th and was in the Concord jail, um, Hmm. for quite a while. Well, and Simon's story of how he captured this guy is kind of interesting. This guy 
seemed to have been um, separated from his regiment. He he seems to have been drunk and separated from his regiment, um, according to him. Um, mm. And that's how he was captured. You know, and there's another account from Sylvanus Wood, uh, mm. not too long after that, of him capturing um, a guy from the 18th Regiment of Foot also. Mm. Yeah. And, and Simon said he didn't put up any resistance. He just no. uh, put himself in his care. So. Yeah. He just, <laughs> he just said he was drunk and that was it. And here's the gun. And, yeah. and he took his, took his equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the thing you really find interesting and we've all find interesting are the stories behind these people who are holding these objects or firing these musket balls or being hit by the musket balls. Right. Right. Well, you know, these things, when you can tie them to a human being, yeah. um, give it a lot more dimension as opposed to just being a gun. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it's the kind of the human stories that really add to the overall story mm -hmm. of April 19th. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been doing a bit of work at the Jason Russell House in Arlington, which then was Monotomy, which is actually the scene of some of the bloodiest action that day. Right. Right. We've been doing actually we well, I'll, let me go back a little bit. Okay. Um, we started thinking about doing a bullet strike study during the Parker's Revenge Archaeology Project. Um, within the first day of our training there, I met Dr. Doug Scott, who uh, is a pretty famous conflict archaeologist and has done some amazing things. And I had read his books and seen him on uh, various TV shows before. And as we worked on Parker's, um, we, you know, he talked about, man, it would be really cool to do a live fire study and understand these guns um in a better way but we couldn't he couldn't figure out where we could get the guns but i happened to have them at home so so we ended up uh setting up a large property south of atlanta georgia we brought in a ballistician and some other archaeologists and we spent three days firing at objects ballistics gelatin with high-speed cameras collecting all of that data all of the muzzle velocities and we, we metal detected each ball um, and saved it so we could record all of that information. Uh, wow. we, we did that twice. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I was walking through the Jason Russell house with Sarah Lundberg, uh, the director. And uh, she, you know, we just took another look at the bullet holes. I'd seen him since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, we were, we were looking at him in a different light after doing mm -hmm. the live fire study. Really? So, yeah. so Doug and I were presenting at the Society for Historical Archaeology Conference. And uh, we decided we would set up a day with a group of archaeologists, including Dr. Meg Waters, who did um, mm -hmm. Parker's. And we went through the entire house and we had ballistics rods, lasers. We lined up where all the shooters were, uh, where the ball went after it went through one panel mm -hmm. or wall, mm -hmm. um, found other strikes and, and where the balls had reached their terminal velocity. Um, and then at that point, we decided to um, try and find every bullet strike or bullet struck object mm. from April 19th, mm. uh, which we did, which took some extensive newspaper searches, mm -hmm. other things, but we've tracked down every known one and we have two more to look at. Really? So where, what do you mean by bullets? So these are places along the route. Yep. Well, right. Cool. So you've got uh, Buckman Tavern, mm -hmm. um, you've got Monroe Tavern. Um, there are the, the Elisha Jones house by the North mm -hmm. bridge. Um, and then there are a, a variety of objects that were struck also, uh, window shutters, um, in monotomy, um, and door panels from the, uh, Captain William Adams house in monotomy, which is gone. Um, and so we started to go through all of these objects and record all of the information, which we're working on now, Doug and I should have it published, hopefully, or at least have it to the publisher by uh, next fall and out by the 250th. Great, very good. 
So what are some of the things you found in looking at these bullet strikes? Well, <clears throat> you know, understanding firing the guns live at objects and seeing how wood reacts. Mm -hmm. um, and especially, you know, I, and I know people have said, oh, you firing at new wood, it's going to be different. Well, that's exactly right. We, we got wood that would have been um, like wood sheathing that would have been um, from a house that dated to about the same period as Jason Russell mm -hmm. um, from Neil and Anna Rasmussen, who, who helped me out with that part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're able to see how the wood reacts when you fire you know, we've fired fouling pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, we've fired uh, British pattern 1756 muskets and see how the wood blowout is on the back, how it looks from the front. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got one more of those live fires to do before we actually publish the book. Um, and we're actually going to try and hit a powder horn um, so we can see how it reacts like the, uh, right. the James Hayward horn um, from Acton, which is now yeah. on loan to the Museum of the American Revolution. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that powder horn? Because it's been in the Acton Library and who um, James Hayward was. And... Well, James Hayward was a 25-year-old school teacher from Acton. Um, he was a member of one of the militia companies, and he had chopped the toes off on one foot and really didn't have to participate in militia service, but he did anyway. Hmm. Um, and he marched on the 19th um, with his company uh, to Concord, and he fought all the way to Fisk Hill, where he was, he purportedly uh, met some British soldiers who were looting the Fisk house. And uh, supposedly, according to the story, they both fired at the same time. Um, the British soldier fell dead and Hayward uh, was mortally wounded, uh, shot through the powder horn. Um, mm. So when you look at the powder horn, it's definitely uh, British, um, about a 69 caliber ball. They do vary. Mm. We've also done We've done a bullet study based on archaeological examples um, to see the range of British musket balls because they're not all 0.693, um, mm. which is we tend to think of these things in modern terms with right, a modern yeah, gun, yeah. but they were between 0.67 and 0.72. So mm. there's a little, I mean, it's a minor amount, but right. you can see that in some of the objects that were struck, including the horn. Would the soldiers have been making these balls along the march or would they have been? No, now they would have been prepared and and a lot of the guys you know there were there were people who you know in each town you had a town stock of arms and you had a town stock of ammunition and obviously in the militia a minute companies everybody was supposed to supply their own however there were some who didn't have money mm -hmm. uh, or couldn't afford them or couldn't find them so some arms were loaned by towns along with uh, powder and shot uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so they were, you know, some of them had paper cartridges and some of them were firing from horns. Interesting. So the powder horns, these would, can you tell us more about what these were and what they would look like? Yeah, they're, they're basically just a simple cow horn. They come in lefts and rights, um, utilizing mm -hmm. both horns. Um, a lot of them are very simple and plain without a lot of carving on them. Um, I did a talk last weekend uh, at the Hive mm -hmm. and I showed some examples of April 19th horns. There are two from Concord um, known that have, you know, simple, no carving, but with mm -hmm. a recessed pine plug with their name written on a piece of paper and a piece of glass over it on the base. Mm. Um, but then there are carved horns also. There's two in the Concord Museum, uh, one owned by a guy named Samuel Jones, who is a blacksmith in town. And the other person who is a little more famous is Amos Barrett. Mm -hmm. uh, both of those were carved by Samuel Jones. And you can see them if you go look at the wonderful uh, April 19th exhibit yeah. at the museum. Yeah, the Concord Museum really has a terrific exhibit on the 19th of April. They do. From, uh, not only is it great artifacts, but they tell the story really well about it. It's, 
it's really well done. Yeah, really well done. Um, as an example, I have a Siege of Boston um, carved powder horn right here. Wow. Um, from uh, Richard Andrus. He was from Kingsbury, wow. Connecticut. Yeah, mm. it's a fantastic horn. Um, yeah. Fifth known from this carver. Um, mm. But it, this is an example of a more ornately mm -hmm. uh, carved horn than some of the plain ones. Yeah. So it would be a person who did the carving and not necessarily the person who carried it. Right, right. Sometimes there was a person who uh, was good at carving, and mm -hmm. he would he would carve them up and leave um, a blank slate where you could put your name and date. And then when okay. he sold the horn, then you carve your name and the date where you were, maybe. Um, Interesting. And yeah, there there are some great Siege of Boston horns out there. Yeah, yeah. And does it make a difference if you have a left or a right horn? Uh, no, no. There's. I just wrote an article on uh, a group of horns that were carved at the Brookline Fort, um, right over where the BU Bridge and the Mass mm -hmm. Pike is now. Um, and there's one out of the three that's a left-handed horn, and the other two are, are right. Hmm. Well, yeah. did the British use powder horns? Um, the British Light Infantry um, used powder horns and shot bags, um, but uh, the regular battalion and grenadier companies were carrying cartridge boxes around their waist and then pouches with straps over their shoulder. Hmm. Do you know how much one of these would have cost a militiaman to get? Uh, you know, I haven't seen any real records on how much they were paying for a horn. I mean, a lot of the simple ones probably didn't cost that much. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, a lot of loss returns for Bunker Hill specifically. There right. are a few for April 19th, which gives some prices of horns, but it's hard to say whether, you know, whether they were carved or not. Obviously, those would have cost a little more money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of things that are lost, you have found a lot of ads for guns that were lost on April 19th, presumably someone. Uh, and so the, the person who lost it wants to recover it. So they're posting ads in the newspaper. So there's 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 a few out there from the 19th. Um, one in particular is is one you and I were just discussing. Um, Nathan Putnam from Danvers. Um, he was badly wounded um, in Monotomy, um, modern day Arlington. Mm -hmm kind of diagonally across the street from the Jason Russell house and his gun was taken. And by reading the ad, um, it looks like the gun, um, it's mentioned as a French gun, uh, was more mm -hmm. than likely a French 1717 or 1728, um, mm -hmm. possibly used during the French and Indian war. And, um, it looks like it was owned by the town It had been, um, lent to him, um, uh, by the town and they're trying to get it back, um, mm -hmm. yeah. because it had a value and it was important. Right. Yeah. So he presumably would have to pay the town if he couldn't recover it. Yeah. And there are many of those. Um, some towns are better than others. Sudbury yeah. has some mm -hmm. great documents on that with guns being loaned out uh, prior to the 19th. It'll say gun and bayonet and mm. that I'm responsible for it unless lost in battle. Yeah. And it seems like the soldiers are both carrying fouling pieces, that is, guns they would use, as well as these French muskets or muskets that would have dated back to an earlier time. So when you look at, there are some great documents that I found in, in a variety of towns, um, but specifically there's one at Mass Archives which lists the ball per pound used by Captain Turner's company, and it's in June of 1775. And by looking at the ball per pound, which is how they figured it, they didn't figure it by caliber like we do today. Um, you can see that the majority of the guys in that particular company are all carrying uh, fouling pieces based upon the, the caliber of the ball. 
Interesting. Um, we talked a little bit about par the Parker's Revenge site. That's an interesting story in recovering that site and then the archaeological work you did there, as well as what Captain Parker was doing there on the 19th of April. Yeah, that was that was a great experience in so many ways, um, because over the two year period, every time we worked out in the field, we found a little more and a little more. And you could mm -hmm. see the story all come together. And a lot of that is based upon the caliber, you know, the weight of the ball that we found um, that helped us to discern where uh, Parker's men were, um, what they were firing. You know, it's funny when I held Captain Parker's fouling piece. Um, you know, we were looking at the bore of the gun and one of those ball that we found that were fired could have come out of that gun. You yeah. know, it's amazing. It's so, um, and, and this is on a ridge. So I don't know if you want to tell the story of park. He was at Lexington green when the British initially come through. And well, so this was, then is later right. in the morning. This is later, um, when, after he pulls his company together, which was mm. amazing after what they suffered that morning, uh, that Parker, you know, pulled his men together. Reverend Jonas Clark, you know, gave a, a, a little speech to the men and they marched off to the fight. Um, and there's one account that talks about it. They came, you know, to the bounds of, of Lexington, Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody thought it was on the rocky outcrop. Um, and we searched the entire rocky outcrop and we found pull tabs, uh, beer cans, mm -hmm. roach clips. <laughs> but no, probably, no, not from, probably not from Parker's men. Uh, probably not. Probably not. But, um, we uh, we we did find some musket balls um, just for the north of that, um, and so that's where we ended up focusing our attention. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we found uh, we found quite a story. And, and then you're able to discern that here are musket balls are British, and here are musket balls that are American or colonial. To, to a point, to a point, yeah. you can because um, you know, and in, in, in this is where you need to go back and look into the past um, before April 19th is understanding what weapons were in Massachusetts at the time. Mm -hmm. So during the French and Indian war, there were uh, 2000 uh, British muskets pattern 1742s that uh, were loaned to Massachusetts and they were, they arrived in 1756 and uh, they issued them out quickly and a lot of them disappeared. Hmm. Uh, so, so there were a few of those guns in, in provincial hands, um, which would have been obviously the same caliber as, as the British muskets. Yeah. Uh, that were the pattern 56s and mm -hmm. 69s that were being carried by the British forces. Um, however, um, there weren't that many of them. And, and when you look at some of the documents, like I mentioned, Captain Turner's company, there, there could have been, they could have been big boar followers, but there, they could have been, you know, three or four British muskets in that company. Hmm. Interesting. A listener commented on the uh, Buttrick powder horn. That's the Minuteman Park, Major Buttrick yeah, was, powder horn. Well, the, that one's actually the one at Minuteman is Willard Buttrick. Um, okay. Willard, Willard Buttrick um, was there on the 19th, and his house um, was right in front of where the visitor center is now. Um, that horn I had known about as a kid, and mm -hmm. it was shown for President Grant and the other visitors during the centennial, and it's mentioned in the centennial book. Wow. So about five or six years ago, I was sitting at, on my deck drinking a beer, and uh, Jim Hollister emailed me and mm -hmm. said, hey, take a look at this. This family wants to donate it. Oh, wow. um, could you, what do you think about it? And as mm -hmm. soon as I saw the pictures, I freaked out because mm -hmm. I knew what it was. I ran downstairs, grabbed the book, um, and the family, the Buttrick family, ended up donating it to Minuteman, which is fantastic.
Wow, that is that's a really is a great uh, great thing to have. You know, just speaking of the different kinds of uh, muskets and the preparation, one thing that was found in 1934, actually in the old muster field above yeah. the Northbridge site, were these flints. Right. Yes. So, um, in 1934, Benjamin Lincoln Smith, um, an avocational archaeologist, um, had been uh, looking for Native American artifacts, and he noticed that the what we call the muster field uh, was plowed for the first time in his life. So he went up there and it had rained and snowed and he started to find artifacts, but they weren't native American. Hmm. Uh, and he commented that they were, they were glistening like jewels when he saw them with the dampness. And he ended up finding about a hundred musket flints in two rows, hmm. uh, which was fantastic because those also tell us a story yeah. um, of, uh, they, they tell numerous stories, but one of them is what types of guns they're carrying also. Yeah. It's interesting the way these then would, I, I mean, you've done a video with this really great photography showing the sequence of events with the musket firing. It seems like it takes an hour as we're watching this, but it's with the high almost, yeah, it's, it, it's slower, obviously than a modern gun. Um, yeah. but when we use our high speed uh, videography, um, it slows it way down. So you can see everything that happens, um, when the flint strikes the hammer um, and the sparks go into the pan and light the gun off, um, it's it's actually really cool looking at the videos. Yeah. And these old, well, I don't want to use the term old as a pejorative, but these vintage guns too, uh, you, you, you've commented that at first you're kind of disappointed because they're composed of different pieces. That is, they but these guys are actually putting things together and... Uh, well, you got to remember with the embargo, um, mm -hmm. There were no arms being shipped over other than what was here for sale already. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, you could go into Boston and buy a gun. You could buy gun barrels. You could mm -hmm. buy gun locks. Um, but by the start of the war, obviously, a lot of that was drying up. Um, and they were taking barrels and locks and building guns. Um, and even after the 19th, there was a gunsmith set up in Concord um, by Colonel mm -hmm. Barrett um, to build guns out of parts. And... Mm -hmm. So he assembled at least 400 guns in Concord that I found wow. Wow. Uh, after the 19th, obviously. Well, we're talking with Joel Boy, who is an archaeologist, curator, uh, appraiser, a man of many talents, uh, as well as um, a real historical sleuth that is tracing the provenance and origins of these things. And I wonder if you have any just idea how many gunsmiths there might have been around at the time. It's it's hard to say. And, you know, the, uh, Tom Grinslade uh, wrote a book on uh, uh, flintlock filing pieces, and he um, put some names together of guys. Um, there's another book out there which kind of lists some of the names, but it's really not known because mm -hmm. there were a lot of guys who were building guns. Yeah. Um, whether they were building the locks and the barrels is a different story. That took mm -hmm. a lot more work um, than just assembling the gun. You had a lot of clockmakers who were also building guns, right. um, and they were basically assembling them from parts. Mm -hmm. um, so you know there was uh, <laughs> Joseph Lee, who everybody knows from Concord, um, thought to be a loyalist and imprisoned in his own home. Mm -hmm. Prior prior to the nineteenth, in his journal, he lists bringing an old gun barrel to Isaac Davis and Acton. Wow. Uh, yeah, to build into a gun. So they're utilizing everything they have available. That's interesting. And then where would the powder have come from? Well, again, towns had stocks of powder. Mm. 
and and shot for a, for an emergency. So um, they kept that, um, but you could also buy powder. Um, obviously, that was also um, going to be drying up fairly quickly, mm -hmm. um, and they had to look to other sources. Um, but there were stocks of powder, and one of the things the Provincial Congress did prior to the 19th was to ask for a list of all of the town stocks of, of powder um, so that they knew what they had on hand. Interesting. And then the flints, are those locally produced or are those imported? No, no, those were all imported too. You see some, um, a few French blades that, mm -hmm. that are around, but the majority of them are English spalls, English gun mm -hmm. spalls. Now, can you, as an archaeologist, determine where they came from? Well, I got to clarify, I'm not a professional archaeologist. Okay, um, I'm an archaeologist who can... However, <laughs> as, an, as an avocational, um, yeah, we, we, can, we know what the different types look like. Okay, good. Thanks. Uh, Jim Hollister, who is listening in, reports that that Buttrick phone call was the only time he heard you speechless. Yeah, so. yeah I, think I, I think I dropped a few swears, too, because I was pretty well, excited, but... <laughs> it is an it's an exciting find. We're always it, it always is when you those rare occasions when you have something that is really extraordinary like that. Oh yeah. 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 Um so let's go back to the Jason Russell house because okay. that's uh it, it, the folk our, much of our focus as you said we're laser focused on April 19th in Lexington and Concord and you've very deftly avoided telling us which town was more important in that action but folks in the know realize that most of the real fighting happened in Monotomy. And well, yeah, most of it, most of it happened in East Lexington through, um, till you get to Charlestown or through what's now Somerville. But yeah, the, the, the real heavy fighting, um, from, you know, it through Monotomy, um, and around the Jason Russell house. Um, and like I said, going through there and seeing the bullet strikes, um, we, as we went through, we found more, and it was really neat to line all the shooters up so you could see where the guy fired the shot from. Um, and what we did was um, through, you know, as we walked through doing the strike with Dr. Meg Waters, she, you could see she had the Grinch smile on. She was thinking of things that we should do. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was ground penetrating radar outside of the house, which we did. Mm -hmm. uh, GSSI, the company that manufactures the machines, graciously uh, did some pro bono work for us. And um, also uh, Feldman Geospatial mm -hmm. um, came in and did 3D laser scanning of the entire house inside and out. Mm. And that's enabled us to put in all of the lines where all the shots wow. came from. Wow. Uh, yeah, pretty so neat. So who was, who was doing the shooting? Um, most of the shots um, at Jason, actually all of the shots at Jason Russell um, look to be British. Um, mm -hmm. There are some that were fired from Mass Ave. Um, and went up through the attic. So those would have been mm -hmm. the troops along the road. Uh, but there are also um, guys outside and inside the house. Uh, and a friend of mine owns a great letter uh, from an officer who actually got inside the house. And he describes the fighting there, that mm -hmm. men were dropping around him as he was trying to get in. And they killed 11 men. And he counted, mm -hmm. he counted 11 men. And he said one of the, one of the uh, um, guys had uh, two horns of powder and 73 balls in his pouch. So he counted them. It, supposedly, that's what he that's what he wrote in his letter home. Uh, but it's a very descriptive letter of the fight wow. around that area. So who were these guys who were inside the house? So provincials. Mm -hmm. um, you've got some guys from Beverly, um, Danvers. There's guys outside from Danvers and Needham, um, and it mm -hmm. seems like they got as bunched up as the British did. 
Um, that British officer talks about, um, he was from the fourth regiment of foot and he talks about a grenadier of the fifth and a Marine being killed mm -hmm. around him, you know? So he's, he's got men from his own company and other companies also. It's, he said it was like they were dumped out of a bag. My goodness. Uh, wow. Fighting, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, were you, did you find any, uh, musket balls or bullet strikes east of there? Did you go east of Monotomy? Um, east of Monotomy, um, there the structures that would have been there are gone now. Oh. Um, there is an object that I'm trying to get to see. I've been trying for the past year, uh, which came out of one of those houses. Okay. Um, which would have been in um, Charlestown, which is now part of Somerville. Um, okay. But as far as the structures, yeah. you know, stuff's been raised. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're talking with Joel Boy, who is the director of historic arms and militaria for Bruno and Company Auctioneers. He appraises military artifacts and um, has also been collecting the documentary evidence on a lot of this stuff and uh, has guns built so they can do ballistic uh, tests on them. And I'm wondering, you also have spoken a little bit about the Buckman Tavern where there's evidence because this is where, you know, Colonel Leslie comes on the scene with his col relief column, uh, if I'm getting the story right. Um, you're thinking of Percy. I'm sorry. I always get, Leslie's retreat was this weekend. So it's right. Exactly. That's, that's when you said it, that's what I figured. Yeah. Percy made it to uh, um, East Lexington, um, but just probably just under a mile outside of town. Um, and as the British were retreating, there was some heavy fighting around Buckman and the Merritt, mm -hmm. Merritt Monroe house across the street. Now Merritt Monroe has, um, a bullet strike, uh, up in the attic, which we found would mm -hmm. have been fired from the backyard. Uh, but there's a big addition there now. So you couldn't see where it was fired from, but a newspaper mm -hmm. search provided, um, documentary evidence that in 1915, when the house was being worked on, they found other bullet strikes in the front really? of it. Yeah. Um, and there was also a dresser or a high boy that was owned by the family that had a bullet strike in it. Mm -hmm. I've tried, I've tried to track that down, but nobody knows where it went. Um, Buckman, um, still has the bullet struck front door, mm -hmm. um, and doing a newspaper search. I found mention of more bullet strikes and ended up going back and we found a clapboard that had come off of Buckman with a British bullet strike in it. Really? Um, so it's lost. It's, you know, where it was in the house, but it's still an artifact that was saved. Well, well, this is fascinating. We're talking with Joel Boy about the uh, study of bullet strikes along the battle road and other things. And um, now the um, Parker's Revenge site, now that's really a beginning of a lot of this. And then it's led to other projects you've been involved in and other and archaeologists have been involved in as well. It's led to... Um, all of the bullet strike work live and, you know, mm -hmm. looking at the April 19th strikes, but it's also led to projects all over. I've worked at Gettysburg, um, Fort Necessity down in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, so many other places um, because of, of what happened at Parker's. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of archeologists that don't like metal detectors because yeah. looters, you know, go out and loot battlefields and, mm -hmm. and, but uh, it's an important tool in finding um, a battlefield, especially Parker's where there was so many metal objects in the ground. We had to clean out first before we could mm -hmm. actually find the musket balls. Well, um, you mentioned uh, it kind of in passing the naming of places like Parker's revenge wasn't called that the site wasn't called that until um, fairly recently in times. And then was the muster field called the muster field? No. Uh, and the, Musterfield, 
uh, was named that probably sometime in the 19th, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was owned by David Brown, who was a captain mm -hmm. in one of Concord's minute companies. And um, it was just a field that looked over the bridge at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. The actual muster field in Concord was in town. Wow. Okay. And then places like um, the Bloody Angle, Merriam's Corner, Bloody Angle. There are lots of battlefields with a Bloody Angle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, that probably that term probably came into play because of, you know, the Spotsylvania battlefield right, you know, yeah. battlefields. And it was an easy way to name it at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But the soldiers weren't actually saying, you know, no. here we are at the bloody no. angle. Yeah. No, or, not at all. Or park the site of Parker's revenge. You know? Nope. Yeah. Um, what about uh, cannonballs? Any evidence of any heavy artillery? Well, there's, um, there was one cannonball that, uh, was fired by Percy's relief when they arrived because they had two six pound mm -hmm. guns with them that went through the meeting house. And supposedly that cannonball survived. It was picked up by a guy named Levi Harrington. And in the 1830s, I believe, supposedly some people came out um, and he lent the musket ball to Harvard and they took it and he never got it back. So supposedly there's that six pound solid shot. Um, and there's also a few that were found um, in Monotomy, uh, which are in the Arlington Historical Society now. Uh, but there's no, you know, cannonball damage that's left from April 19th. Be careful when you give something to Harvard. Yeah. Listen there. We're talking with Joel Boy, and uh, we could go on. Well, we could. There's plenty more to talk about with all of this. Um, Another study uh, you've been a little bit involved in is with the Boston Massacre and uh, ballistic testing there. I know I had a, um, I don't know if you want to tell us anything more about well, that the, aspect of this. Yeah, the, the Boston Massacre musket balls, um, you know, they're fantastic artifacts. Mm -hmm. um, through some research, we found they were passed down through the family, through the mm -hmm. son of Edward Payne. Um, they're in the Mass Historical Society collection. Um, and they hit one of them, hit Edward Payne in the arm and then mm -hmm. lodged in the wall. And the other one went through his building. And by calculating um, where he was roughly with where the British were, you can see that the ball struck with high velocity. Mm -hmm. And one of the tests that we did was to fire in brace with a British pattern 1756 musket with two musket balls. Hmm. And with our ballistician with the high speed cameras, um, we were able to find out that um, the muzzle velocity of the gun drops dramatically to the mm. point where the, the second musket ball almost falls on the ground um, when it comes, you know, 30 mm. feet outside of the gun. Wow. So those two musket balls had to have been fired from a single load um, that day mm. or that evening during the massacre. Interesting. And would the musket balls be damaged then by hitting something, whether oh, a person yeah. or a wall? They, they are damaged. Um, you, when you look at them, you can see the damage to the ball. Um, and they were also, they had a little wire soldered to the back to mount them. Uh, we were able to calculate the weight through Dan Sivlich, um, another guy who's been studying musket balls, calculate the weight of the wire and then calculate the weight of the ball. And even figuring in some loss, um, they're still right in the range for British musket balls. Would the Americans and the British have used the same weight and caliber? Well, again, it, it, they all vary. Um, there's, you know, th through archaeology at Parker's Revenge, Saratoga Battlefield I've worked at, um, mm -hmm. and then dropped musket balls found at specific British fort sites. Um, I was able to calculate um, or put in the data of about 150 musket balls. And that gives us a range. You know, the mm -hmm. British manual says that they're 14 ball per pound. 
And when you calculate using their calculator, it says 0. 0.693. Well, none of them are 0. 0.693. They're all over the yeah. place. So, so there's a little bit of, you know, you've got to figure in that, that characteristic. Right. Right. Um, I wonder if you can tell us, uh, and I don't know if this is going to put you on the spot or uh, make you worry that someone has one and now they know you want it. What is one object you would really like to have come across your desk, either just as an amateur historian or as an appraiser? So, well, I mean, I love them all. So, yeah. you know, the powder horn that I just showed, yeah. um, I was contacted about a couple of weeks ago and I had been called about two powder horns prior to that during that day. And my colleague said, oh, this is going to be the one. And I went, no, it's going to be another $20 powder horn. And as I talked to the guy, I went, this isn't a $20 powder horn. Um, so I, I met the guy actually at the North bridge, um, to pick it up. And, uh, so it's all these things, the muskets, powder horns, bayonets, you know, anything that has a provenance, I just, I love. Yeah. You were telling me earlier that sitting behind your desk, you have a dozen or so muskets. Uh, actually I have about a hundred. hundred. I think you can, you can see a few of them. Some of the barrels. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's, 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 they're all over the place. Hmm. Now, do they fire? They do. Um, a lot of these, there, there's revolution through um, 1870 behind me um, and around the corner. Um, and uh, you can fire them, sure. Um, when it comes to the Revolutionary War stuff, I'm not a fan of firing any of that. Yeah. Uh, that's why um, I had all those guns custom built right. so that we could, we could, you know, fire, feel comfortable and safe firing them where we're not going to damage a historic artifact or ourselves. Right. Yeah. It, it seems like there could have been a lot of accidents at the time with these. There, there were. I mean, you think of Henry Knox. Henry Knox blew That's his right. fingers off when the yeah. breach of his fouling piece uh, exploded. Yeah. There was another guy named David Smith on April 19th who had borrowed a gun and equipments from um, someone in town. And that person in town put in a petition um, because he lost it all because the gun blew up on, on David Smith and he was wounded. And Ooh. so he wanted money for his gun. Wow. Wow. That's fast. And, and earlier when you were talking about James Hayward, uh, it, he actually cut his toes off with an ax. Yeah. Yeah. It had a little accident. And yeah. Jeez. That's a, it was a tough time to live. Yeah. With those yeah. 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 So we, we, we've been talking with Joel Boy, who is the um, director of historic arms and military for Bruno and company auctioneers. And he's been involved with the Parker's revenge archeology span project, as well as the uh, bullet strike study of the um, Jason Russell House and other places. And he is uh, a wealth of knowledge, as we can see, on all of these things. So it's been really great to talk to you, Joel. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you also. Yeah. Well, let's do it again. We should. We should, yes. And so thank you. Thanks for joining us. And I want to thank all of our listeners, including those who have chimed in today with questions and comments. And you know, when, and I want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer. You know, Joel, when we started this, we thought we'd have a handful of folks in and around Massachusetts listening in. And fortunately, we have folks all over the world who right. are regular listeners. So I want to thank some of them. We have uh, regular listeners in Detroit, Michigan, as well as in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, and in Paris and Santo Domingo and in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to thank Vince Cole, who listens to us while he's on his long commute through the Valley of the Sun. Uh, so thank you all. And now we will be, and if you are in one of these places, send Jonathan Lane an email and I'll send you one of our Revolution 250 tchotchkes, a lapel pin, 
or our magnets. And I want to thank you all for joining us. Now we will be piped out on the road to Boston.